the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. History has clearly shown that Christ is required to overcome the natural tendency of powerful forces to destroy God-given rights, including the right to hear and speak His truth. Welcome to Biblical Citizen. Let's roll with your hosts, Brian and Kathleen Melanakis. Kathleen is an author and retired registered nurse, and her husband, Brian, is a former company president. Kathleen and Brian discuss current events from a biblical worldview, so we as believers can influence for good in our culture and in the public square. Here is Biblical Citizen. Let's roll. Hello, Biblical Citizens. What images come to mind when you think of San Francisco? You know, the first place I worked professionally in my career was in San Francisco, and I regularly heard foreign tourists around me as I was walking to doctor's offices saying, this is the most beautiful city in the world. And it's still got a lot of beauty, but when you think of it now, you may think more likely of homeless tents, crime, dirty sidewalks, things like that. So we're going to talk today with Stephen Greenhut. He's the author of the recent book, Back from Dystopia, A New Vision for Western Cities, which we need not only for San Francisco, but for San Diego and for cities all across the land. Stephen is a senior fellow and Western Region Director for the R Street Institute. He's director of the new Free Cities Project for the Pacific Research Institute. He's been a writer for Orange County Register, San Diego Union Tribune. Welcome, Steve. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. So you have a recent book, and you say that um, urban homelessness, let's start with that. You say urban homelessness has probably become the biggest issue in voters' minds. And I can certainly vouch for that when I attend local political meetings. It seems like the first question out of the chute. But I didn't know this. You mentioned a recent study from the Cicero Institute, and this relates to our state policy of housing first. Just keep it, give people... Give homeless people free housing, if you can afford That's it, what they say, yeah. with no strings attached. Well, your uh, study that you cite said that cities have to build 10 beds to remove a single homeless person from the street, since the vast majority of such units go to people who would not have been permanently homeless. So is this housing first policy? Talk about that a little bit. Is this a big reason why... California has something like one-third of the entire nation's homeless population? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, first, but before I get to that, I just want to mention, you mentioned San Francisco. Yep. I'm there all the time. Yep. And, and uh, it, you know, it is, as you point out, still a lovely city. And, and my you know, the goal in, on the book and with the Free City Center is to promote, um, you know, positive things rather than just San, San Francisco dumping on it. I know you probably agree on that and i i, I do yeah that, yeah and i think a lot of like we we had a my daughter was married in san francisco not long ago and we had a lot of out-of-town guests and a lot of folks they expected it to look like dystopia really even though that's in the title of my book but they expected it to look and it, it's not like that it's just problems in a concentrated area 
and uh, different concentrated areas. There's a sense of public disorder. There's a, definitely a crime problem. Uh, but but the point is, I, I think it's fixable. So that's you know, and I think the, it does start with the homeless uh, issue in San Francisco and some other cities because it creates the sense of of, of uh, lack of safety on the streets. And I mean, San Francisco recently they had um, they sent in the National Guard to deal with these open air drug markets, which happened to be centered around homeless encampments. It's like the Wild West in those places. Um, and no one really complained in San Francisco. So I, I, I think the problem is, is fixable, but the state, and this gets back to your question, the state with the how has, like in so many things, they kind of put ideology among, above just common sense. I don't know if there is common sense anywhere, but basic uh, programs designed to fix problems. So there's, they, they embrace these ideologies. So, Housing first, and then you combine that with bureaucracies that don't perform anything well. So housing first, as I understand it, wasn't a bad idea because it was initially designed to apply to mothers with children who were temporarily uh, lost their houses. Maybe they uh, had a problem with with the boyfriend or the spouse. They're out on the street. Just get them housing first. Get them and their kids sheltered. That's not that bad of an idea. But then it got... It, it got translated to to state policy, and and you know a lot of reports confirm this. And I know from my discussions with uh, the rescue mission down in Orange County, uh, you know, an overwhelming proportion of the people on the streets in California are suffering. Uh, you know, they self-identify as having uh, mental health uh, problems or addiction problems. So if you just put people with problems in a room. They're, you know, they're going to die alone of drug addictions, right? Of their overdoses. It's not going to solve the problem because they need a whole uh, range of services. So there's that. The other thing is, and this touches on the bureaucracy point, is our state, uh, you know, with all the union mandates and CEQA regulations and governmental general waste, you know, it just costs us so much more to do everything than in other places. Uh, you know, we're building units for seven hundred thousand to a million dollars a unit in Southern California and the Bay Area for homeless housing. Obviously, there's not enough money in the world to build a house, even if housing first were a good idea. There's not enough money in the world to build them at the rate that we're building. Uh, and the state is remarkably immune to creative solutions, cost saving solutions. Oh, so, well, yeah, and that so we brings end up, up with this bureaucracy. Yeah, that that brings up this whole issue of treating people differently according to what their needs are and what their problems are. And you say in your, in your writings that the state should embrace a policy of triage. And we've talked about this before. There's three main groups of people that are homeless, correct? You know, there's ones that are transiently in a financial state where they can't afford a, a an apartment for a you know, for a, a, a specific period of time. Then there's the, those that are dealing with addictions. And then there's the mentally ill. So those need to be treated in a different way, not just one size fits all. And that's what Housing First is, isn't it? It's just, you know, get yeah. them in the housing. And like you say, there's not enough money in the world to 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 only treat it as a material problem. And And we're going to, the next question is, 
you know, about faith-based organizations and how it often is a spiritual problem with uh, the, uh, the, the addicted and the mentally ill. But, so that's a big right. question, but, talk, but anyway. <laughs> t- yeah, you threw a lot of questions. But talk first about the, the different, the different yeah. kinds of homeless. No, I think that, that's, that's the right point. You treat different people differently. So if somebody, uh, you know, like uh, if, if, if somebody generally uh, has an apartment and has housing and then loses it for some, you know, temporary reason, that's obviously different than somebody who's been – living on the streets for years or is living in a, uh, you know, in a, uh, in a, in a tent and on the tenderloin dealing drugs. I mean, these are different things and I think they all need to be treated. Yeah. And it is a genuine, it is a uh, genuine public issue, obviously, because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's bad for the people living there and it's also bad for the, the neighbors. And, and I've been a little dismayed by folks who just want uh, you know, the people round it up and put somewhere else, which that's really not going to work and it's not going to be legally uh, acceptable. It's not ethically uh, acceptable either. Uh, but I wrote a column not long ago about in, in Texas, in San Antonio, they had a major uh, homeless problem. And uh, the city, um, I don't know if it was faith based, but the city uh, funded a nonprofit. Uh, where they built a big, beautiful, homeless uh, campus not that far from downtown uh, in, in an industrial area, as I, as I understand it. And um, they offer services and uh, dormitories, cafeteria, jobs, uh, mental health and addiction uh, treatment, and their security. And it, it, uh, they were able to, by their claims, I haven't been to San Antonio, I haven't done a lot of reporting on it, but... but the, the claims are that they reduced the downtown homeless population by 80%, right? So that seems like a better model than what we're doing, what California's doing, which we're funding these overpriced uh, housing first units. We're throwing money everywhere. Uh, it seems like uh, building a nice campus, and then that conforms with the Boise decision, which is the, uh, which is the federal court decision uh, saying that uh, cities cannot remove people from uh, public, most public facilities unless they have a place to put them. So build a nice facility that treats uh, treats their addictions, um, and then you'll reduce. You know that's kind of the that's that's the first thing. That's the low hanging fruit. You reduce the people uh, without any sort of coercion, right? You've got people. People will go and you get rid of most of the population and then you're stuck dealing with a smaller problem, probably mostly those who are who are uh, mentally ill and, and, and can't make you know decisions. We've all seen them right screaming at us on the street corner. Right. Um, and, and then but then the other thing, and I think this is one thing uh, our state's doing that makes sense, like Governor Newsom uh, started the care courts. And uh, uh, I had uh, done some research. I know Orange County had those for a while. Basically, uh, if 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 you arrest somebody for uh, uh, you know camping in a public park or panhandling or something, you don't send them to jail. Uh, you send them to the uh, care court, which then sentences them to programs. That's really, and that's what. One of the most important things about the homeless, their addictions need to be treated. They need to be helped out of them, not 
enabled in them. And religious-based and faith-based organizations are better at doing that because it is a spiritual problem, in our opinion. Okay, so your next question, Brian. Steve, let's talk about some broader urban kind of political policies. So we've talked about some of the problems, but I wasn't aware of this. You say there's been a 50-year, something like a 50-year government campaign to urbanize our society. And despite this, here in California, many are choosing, and we know this, they're moving away from the coast. They're moving to less expensive inland areas that are hotter, but may have less crime, a better social fabric, and uh, maybe less congestion. And this is amazing. San Francisco that we'd mentioned has lost almost 7% of its population in the last three years. So my first question on this is, why do you think government is so intent on urbanizing our society? Well, there is this, you know, this philosophy, this kind of new urbanism philosophy. Part of it's driven by their concerns about climate change. Uh, part of it, you know, it's been, this is just a planning philosophy that's been around forever. And it isn't a, an entirely bad thing. I mean, this, this, the goal is to uh, create more walkable uh, cities, which which I, I think is a nice thing. I mean, it's just that um, it, I'm, I'm in favor of market approaches. So I, I, I definitely support what the state's been doing, like Senate Bill 9 and 10, which allows private builders, developers, homeowners uh, to identify if they want. Right. I mean, the, the whole suburban, uh, and I, I have nothing against suburbs, I have nothing against cities. I, I just think there's something for everyone, and there are different things for different people at different stages of their lives. So I, I started out um, in a big East Coast city, and then uh, my wife and I, uh, upon arrival of our first child, we moved out to a suburb. And then I raised my kids in, in, a, in a more traditional suburb. And now as we're uh, empty nesters, uh, and then we've lived out in the country here. And as empty nesters, we're, we're moving back into town. So the problem I have is using the government to kind of mandate this one-size-fits-all. I mean, a, a really cool college experience uh, in Europe where people walk everywhere in some of the big cities, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of the the planners point to this kind of experience. That is not the model for uh, for planning. It, it, we need to allow things to develop naturally from the bottom up rather than from the top down. So I'm fine with um, these laws that uh, allow higher density construction. I mean, the suburbs are a government creation anyway. After World War II, it was from government mandates, but they're they're also restricting the, the growth of suburban areas. And we need, you know, housing issues. And the state has a huge uh, housing uh, crisis, high prices, as you know, down where you're at. Right. The region, the, the regional markets. So we're not going to solve that problem entirely by just building higher density urban things within the urban footprint. We need to build suburbs, too. So and this, this brings up the approach. issue of 15-minute cities. So this is something that's being implemented in New York and in London, as I understand. And But it's a plan to really restrict people's movement, isn't it? And to uh, is pushed by the global org- organizations like World Economic Forum. And, and, you know, they are saying that it's because of climate change. <clears throat> but it's really many people are 
you know, the critics are saying it's to, a way to tax people out of their cars so they can't even own cars anymore, restrict their movement, implement climate lockdowns. So you have to have a permit to go anywhere outside of where you live with, you know, 15 minutes beyond where you live. You have to have a permit or else you have to pay a tax. So uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, I have not, you know, accepted a couple extreme circumstances. I have seen nothing about, uh, you know, people having to have a permit to go anywhere. I mean, it, it all depends on on what it means not, and how it's not yet <laughs> but that's well, what they no, would I like think, I think this is right? mainly seen we're not we're not saying this is already here no. in, yeah, in San Francisco but it is being right. implemented I believe I have read in certain European cities and it is certainly sure. being advocated and talked about and there's articles about it about this whole concept of 15 minute cities which I think would find its support here in the US and isn't in Man- well, in Manhattan you have to uh, well, they've just to, implemented. Yeah. Con, they call it congestion pricing, but that's a version yeah. of it. That's a version of it. You're you have to pay more if you come into the city at certain times. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean, I don't think that's a, the most horrendous idea. I mean, conge- I mean, a- anything uh, market. It's kind of market based in a way that particular narrow thing. I, you know, from what I've seen on fifteen minute cities, it just depends on what it ends up specifically being. So the idea that we all should be able to live our entire lives within 15 minutes. Well, we actually, this country already is a, basically a 30-minute city. Um, you know, studies show that Americans tend to live within 30 minutes of where they work. Really? I didn't uh, even know it, that. It, yeah, it just yeah. kind of, nat- like, it just naturally happens that way for obvious reasons, as people generally don't want to be stuck in an hour commute. Um, so, uh, again, I'm an advocate for, for markets. I, I, there's nothing wrong with uh, the idea of being able to do all those things if that's what you choose. Right. So if you get into what you're talking about, coercive things, and a couple European cities, I think Glasgow, have some coercive aspects of it. There is a coercive nature of some of these things, and then there's a more uh, just a planning model, right? So New urbanism, the idea that we should have walkable cities and people should be able to, to, to live close to where they work and, and have all these green spaces. It's not a bad, it's a good planning idea. Uh, but the question is, how is it being implemented? Is it being allowed or is it being uh, forced upon people? And I, I have no problem with uh, someone wanting to live in a suburb and commuting or someone wanting to live in a city. I mean, I don't, I don't. I don't either. I. I just want to. I want to get to one more key topic while we still have time, and that's the whole issue of how the urban environment can be positively Im- impacted by good schools, which generally most cities are not thought of. Most cities in the United States are not thought of as having outstanding uh, schools right now. And you bring up in one of your articles, this was a study done on a a school district in the Dallas area that embraced a voucher program. So it was an urban area. It embraced a voucher program, an educational choice idea. And one of the things they found is that property values really, really went up. So, I mean, we've talked about educational choice before. It seems like almost a no-brainer, except the teachers' unions hate it, and they're probably the singular most powerful political force in the state of California. How do you think we implement school choice in California? Do you think we can do it politically, especially in the big urban centers? 
Well, I, you know, what you said is extremely important. I, I agree completely. I mean, schools, and of course, my, you know, writing on this is from an urban, uh, you know, an urban perspective rather than a school perspective. So there are lots of good reasons for having choice in in boosting uh, educational outcomes, allowing parents to to choose the kind of schools that that they uh, that best fit their kids needs i mean obviously the teachers unions are are among if not the most powerful lobby in the state and they resist any sort of uh, sensible reform i know when when i had moved from ohio to southern california we were looking at a house in a in a, in a city and um I talked to the principal and he said, you know, we're just not going to be able to help your, your kids here because it was mostly a, a you know, lower income, uh, uh, non-English speaking students. So they, they were focused on basic issues rather than, uh, you know, the kind of, uh, kind of education we, we were looking for. If there were a choice, you know, if, if there was a, a boisterous system of choice, we could have moved there anyway, right. And sent our kids. So it would, Definitely, I think, increase property values, increase the desirability of a lot of neighborhoods. It would spur, uh, you know, uh, re-energizing some of these areas because, if, you know, as parents, what's the main thing you're going to look at on where you live is, is the quality of the schools. Now, we had California did have a leading edge charter school system, still has a good charter school system. Uh Lawmakers in the last couple of years, since you know, since Jerry Brown was a big advocate for uh, charter schools, he even started a couple of them in Oakland. Um, Gavin Newsom's been uh, more supportive of rain. He signed a couple bills that that limit the expansion of charter schools. So I think we could start with charter schools, expanding it, making it a more viable than it is. Well, and we um, say on our program and many of our others. Speakers have also advocated uh, just do homeschooling. Uh, take your kids out of the public system, and maybe that will reduce the power of the unions. Uh, not just that is not the only reason to homeschool, but uh, we 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 don't have a lot of time yet. We want you to mention the Free Cities Project and what you do with that, and then and then we'll just uh, recap what we've what we've talked about. Oh, sure. Yeah, the Pacific Research Institutes, it's a free city center, and you can go to pacificresearch.org, and then you click on a backslash free cities, or you can just click on there. And we're looking at uh, looking for uh, market-based um, reforms that could improve uh, urban life. So There it's, you go. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's meant to be positive, right? I mean, it's not entirely positive. I mean, there are, things, there are a lot of negative stories, but the, the Yeah, you got to address just, problems. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How to address the problems. So education, transportation, housing, all these things. Well, okay, to sum up, we've looked at four different things with you. We've explored the issues of homelessness the 15-minute cities and forced urbanization and how we can have an alternative based in free markets and then school choice. And so, you know, we asked at the beginning, do we need more free market solutions or more top-down planning? And so just give us your last word on that. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm you know, I'm a market guy. I think uh, markets solve problems better than government. 
And I'm not, and and that's just our state is unfortunately on every area of public policy is focused on building more government agencies, more government spending, and governments don't do really anything particularly well. No, they so don't. <laughs> I, yeah, so, so I think the uh, uh, the goal on cities is is allow uh, you know allow people to make their own decisions rather than the planners. So I'm I'm a big fan of Jane Jacobs, the great urban thinker. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the idea is that it should flow from the bottom up and yes. cities need to loosen up rather mm. than, uh, and, and, and I think that's the core to improving cities in all areas, you know, uh, any of these topic areas, uh, allow more housing, allow more educational choice. Uh, we obviously need, uh, you know, uh, uh clever ways to po- police better and to do some of these basic, basic functions, but, uh, we need to let allow people to have more choice in what they do. Thank you so much. That is very good advice. So we hope you can come back with us. We've really enjoyed talking to you today, Steve. I like uh, your phrase, by the way. I'm gonna I'm gonna remember that. Loosen up cities. That's like a that's like <laughs> yeah. a billboard or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Free, free cities. Free the cities. So yeah. Well, good. Well, I appreciate uh, you having me on. Thanks so much. We have been talking with Steve Greenhut author of the recent book, Back from Dystopia, A New Vision for Western Cities. You know, what happens to our cities is so critical to all of us. We want to help those that are in need, the homeless people, in the right way. The health of our cities strongly affects everyone. So to bless your neighbor, go to the Pacific Research Institute website. Think about what you can do to improve our cities. Pray for revival. Work for revival. Until next week. Join us next Saturday at noon for Biblical Citizen. Let's roll. Your hosts, Brian and Kathleen Melanakis, seek to educate and activate Christians at a grassroots level, helping them to live out their responsibility to influence civic affairs for good. Next week, we will cover another major news happening from the view of the Biblical Citizen. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.